Chapter 11 of Edward I. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Caveat. Edward I by Professor T. F. Tout. Chapter 11. The Years of Crisis, 1293 to 1297. While Edward was successfully establishing his feudal supremacy over Scotland, press troubles were brewing between him and his overlord, Philip the Fair, who availed himself of a series of petty quarrels between French and Gascon seamen to press severely against the English king the same claims of superiority which Edward was now exercising over King John of Scotland. In the 13th century there was no hard and fast line between lawful trade and piracy. The narrow seas swarmed with robber craft, and even the most peaceful times, seamen and merchants found in the sword the readiest means of satisfying their local rivalries and commercial jealousies. In the course of 1292, the chronic hostility of the Norman and Gascon sailors had assumed a new and fiercer aspect. The Bretons, Flemings, and other seafaring partisans of the French king backed up the Norman subjects of Philip, while the English and Irish sailors, conspicuous among the former being the men of the Sark ports, led their aid to the Gascon subjects of Edward. Ships were loaded, says a chronicler, not only with merchandise, but with weapons, and though the sea was calm, many a good ship went down, not through being dashed against the rocks, but from the violence of the enemy's attack. At last the Normans gathered together a fleet of 200 ships and defiantly sailed through the channel and Bay of Biscay, hoping that through their immense numbers they would cut off the Gascon wine fleet on its way to England. A fierce sea fight followed off St. Mare in Brittany, in which fortune favoured the smaller fleet that the Gascons, with their English allies, had been able to bring together against the Norman Armada. Many French ships with a rich booty were captured, and a vast number of French seamen perished miserably in the fight. The complaints of the defeated crews soon reached the ears of King Philip, who promptly sent to Edward to exact a reparation for the injury inflicted on by his subjects. Edward's answer was a characteristic one. The King of England, he said, was a sovereign prince, his courts were subject to no earthly superior. If any man complained of injury done by subjects of the English king, let him come before the English courts with his grievances, and due justice should be done to him. But this high style was mere bravado, for Edward knew quite well that as Duke of Gascony, his court had no such sovereignty as he claimed for it. He abated his pretensions so far that he suggested that, if Philip were not contented with the opening of the English courts to his aggrieved subjects, the dispute might be settled by an arbitration, by a personal interview between the two kings. Philip contemptuously brushed aside all Edward's proposals of compromise and cited his vassal to appear before his parliament at Paris to answer for the wrongs inflicted by his men on the subjects of his overlord. Edward neglected to appear, whereupon Philip went down in person to the parliament, pronounced the Duke of Aquitaine contumacious, and declared his duchy forfeited for his treason. The constable of France appeared on the Gascon frontier with sufficient force to execute the royal sentence. A fierce and bloody conflict seemed inevitable. For more than twenty years, Edward had steered clear of a great continental war. He was of no mind to be involved in one at a time when his best efforts were needed to secure his position in Scotland, and when the prospects of leading a crusade seemed less hopeless than usual. While sending the valiant John of St. John with a strong force to protect Gascony from the invasion, he still strove by negotiation to avoid dangers of a long conflict. Edward sent his brother, Edmund of Lancaster to Paris, to try and bring out an accommodation. Edmund's wife's daughter was the Queen of Philip the Fair, 
Both she and the widowed queen of Philip the Hardy had powerful influence over Philip. Moreover, Edmund had everything to gain by peace, as his wife's dowry in Champagne would inevitably follow the fate of Gascony, were war to be declared. In conjunction with the two queens, Edmund patched up terms of reconciliation by which Philip's honour was to be satisfied by the surrender of six Gascon castles, and the admittance of one French official into each of the rest for the strong places of Edward's fief as a sign of formal possession, while a proper investigation was to be made and reasonable compensation offered for the injuries done by the sailors of Bayonne and Bordeaux to the French. There was further talk of a marriage between the widowed Edward and the French king's sister, which was to be the badge and token of a complete restoration of the ancient friendship. The six castles were surrendered, and John of St. John sold off his military stores and left Gascony. But Philip's ministers were much too astute for the sanguine and confident Earl of Lancaster. The French king now declared, with barefaced treachery, that he had never consented to the arrangements made by the two queens on his behalf. In vain the peers of France backed up the rights of their comrade, the Duke of Aquitaine, against the grasping despot. Gascony was invaded, and as Edward's loyal acceptance of the treaty had deprived him of all means of resistance, the whole duchy passed without so much as a blow being struck into the hands of the French. Edmund, in great disgust, left his son-in-law's court. Trickery and lying had got the better of straightforward and honest diplomacy. Edward was overreached, and the war which he had made sacrifices to avert burst forth with redoubled violence. Edward now set his diplomatists to work, and soon built up a formidable alliance against the grasping Philip. At the head of this great confederacy was the new king of the Romans, the strenuous but poor and powerless Adolf of Nassau, just raised to the German throne through the unwillingness of the electors to encourage hereditary succession by the choice of the son of Rudolf of Habsburg. Adolf realised even more fully than Rudolf had done the dangers with which the French aggression menaced the kingdom of Arles and the whole of those western regions of the empire which, with their French tongue and sympathies, were rapidly becoming drawn upon under the influence of the French crown. The foremost prince of Christendom did not scruple to take the pay of the English king and serve as a mercenary in his hosts. With Adolf came all the princes of the empire who adhered to his party, having at their head the Archbishop of Cologne. Still closer reasons of fear drew the Netherlands princes to the English side, including Count Guy of Flanders among the subjects of the French king, and the Counts of Holland and Brabant among the imperial vassals. The heir of Brabant had already been married to one of Edward's daughters, and now another daughter was wedded to the eldest son of the Count of Holland. The still-living friendship between Edward and his Savoyard kinsmen gave special importance to the hot championship of the English cause by the Count Amadeus, the Great of Savoy. Another timely marriage of one of Edward's daughters drew the Count of Bar into the Great Confederacy. The fierce hatred of the King of Aragon to the French Lord of Naples secured him also for the alliance. Philip, on his side, was scarcely less active and almost as successful. The dispute about Guillaume bade fair to divide Europe into two great camps. Contemporaries were reminded of the old struggle of John of England and Philip Augustus. It was believed that another battle of Bovines might well be fought. Edward trusted much to his foreign allies, but he trusted more to the goodwill of his English subjects. These are the years in which Edward's constant recourse to his subjects' pockets brought about, as we have seen, the permanent establishment of the Parliament of the Three Estates. Much indignation was excited by the extraordinary demands which Edward was in his supreme necessities laid upon every order of his people. The chroniclers tell us with infinite disgust how the king's officers searched the uttermost corners of the realm for money. They spared neither priest nor monk, that they broke open every money chest. They ransacked the towers and belfries of the churches, 
and did not even leave unvisited the very lazar houses where the poorest and wretchedest of the king's subjects dragged out their hopeless and weary life of pain and suffering. Two unpopular classes felt most severely the stress of the national effort. These were the French monks, who, fattened on English soil in those alien priories, which depended on foreign houses of religion and the foreign merchants whose debts were collected in the king's name and whose merchandise was confiscated. But the English clergy, who could not fight, were also expected to exceed all laity in liberality. The ecclesiastics were at that moment peculiarly defenceless through the vacancies in the papacy and the archbishopric of Canterbury. Edward at last demanded half of the whole year's revenue of every beneficed churchman. The unlucky clerks were smitten with terror, and as the king raged and stormed before the assembled convocation, the dean of St Paul's dropped dead with fright. By such violence men and money were gathered together, and a general muster was ordered to assemble at Portsmouth in September 1294 whence the army, with the king at its head, was to take ship for Gascony. But the extraordinary claims of Edward had done something to check his subjects' loyalty. What business was it of plain Englishmen, they might ask, whether Gascony was ruled by Edward or Philip? The French king's best hopes rested in the disaffection which Edward's strong and imperious policy had excited within Britain itself. His main trust lay in the Scots and the Welsh. King John of Scotland had attended Edward's parliament and promised him help against the French but even Balliol's sluggish soul had been stirred to indignation by Edward's encouragement of his Scottish subjects to appeal from the decisions of the local courts to the court of an overlord at Westminster. This was a new and unexpected result of Edward's admitted position as feudal superior of Scotland. To Edward it seemed reasonable enough that Scots should appeal to London, just as Gascon appealed to Paris. But to the Scots, who were not litigants, Edward's reception of the appeals clearly gave the lie to his constant declaration that he claimed no rights over Scotland, which were not based on ancient custom. On King John's return from the English Parliament, he was subjected to the same treatment by the Scottish barons which the Parliament of Oxford had imposed on Henry III in 1258. A council of twelve peers was set up, by whose advice John was to govern in future. This meant the transference of the government of Scotland into the hands of the worst enemies of Edward's policy, in 1295, a formal alliance was concluded between Scotland and France. It was the first beginning of that memorable connection of Scotland with England's greatest enemy, which inflicted such incalculable mischief upon all Britain for the next 300 years. Even before the alliance between the Scots and the French, a threefold revolt had broken out in 1294 in Wales, where discontent with Edward's new arrangements had long been simmering. A partisan named Madog, on the stock of the last Llewellyn, raised the highlands of the north, burnt Carnarvon, and posed as a native prince of Wales. In the southern parts of the principality, a youth named Mylgwen spread devastation throughout Cardiganshire and Carmarthenshire, while in the great marchlands of Morgan, one Morgan broke out in rebellion against his lord, Earl Gilbert of Gloucester, Edward's son-in-law, and the foremost baron of the realm. With a heavy heart, Edward turned away from the Gascon expedition on which he had based all his hopes, and betook himself at the onset of winter to North Wales. The whole work of conquest had to be done over again. Edward kept his Christmas court at Conway, and afterwards led a winter expedition amongst the snow-bound fastnesses of Snowdon. Bands of wild Welsh cut off his convoys. Beer and fresh meat proved wholly lacking, and the fastidious English army had to live, as best it might, on water sweetened with honey, on bread and salt meat. But the Welsh suffered real hardships, as in 1277 and 1283, 
all supplies were stopped from entering the mountains. By the spring, famine had brought the rebels to their knees, and Edward, having built a new castle at Beaumaris, was able to return to England in May 1295. While he was fighting at Snowdon, the great expedition had sailed to recover Gascony under the command of the king's nephew, John of Brittany, who had as his chief counsel of the wise and experienced John of St. John. At the same time, a memorable step was taken in the history of the English navy by the appointment by Edward of three admirals charged with the defence of the eastern, southern and western coasts respectively. The latter division included Ireland, and the admiral of the west was a valiant Irish knight. It was high time that something was done. The French had begun the war by burning Dover, but the English retaliated by devastating Cherbourg. Gascon expedition proved a fair success. Its appearance off the coast led to a rising against the French. The loyal fisherfolk and merchants of Bayonne joyfully welcomed back the host of their lawful duke. Bayonne became the centre of a vigorous attempt to win back Gascony, but though some strong places were captured, the greater part of Gascony remained in Philip's hands. Next year, 1296, Edmund of Lancaster went to Gascony, but his valour as a soldier could not undo his weakness as a diplomatist. After failing in an attack on Bordeaux, Edmund died of sheer vexation and despair. It was clear both that Edward could not drive out Philip, and that Philip could not expel Edward. The Great Northern Alliance against France was now the mainstay of Edward's hopes, but as usual in the Middle Ages, it was easier to construct an elaborate plan than to carry out a modest one. Very little came with the boasted confederacy. The Count of Holland was murdered. The Count of Flanders changed sides. Many of the great imperial dignitaries thought they had done their share of the work when they had pocketed Edward's money. King Adolf himself set them a bad example by neglecting his obligations to his English ally and throwing all his scanty strength into a purely personal expedition to the east of Germany. With Adolf's march into Thuringia, the last of his grand schemes against French aggression in the Middle Kingdom faded into thin air. Edward's relations to Scotland partly explained the weakness of the campaign of 1296 on the continent and the final failure of Edmund of Lancaster. After forming a close alliance with the French, the Scots rejected all Edward's demands, misused and imprisoned the English merchants at Berwick, and threatened the English border with invasion. For a second time, Edward was forced to give up his cherished expedition to the continent to deal with his foes on British soil. Just as in 1295, the Welsh revolt prevented him to going in person to Gascony, so, now in 1296, he was obliged to betake himself to the Scottish border, leaving his brother Edmund to meet his untimely fate in the south. Balliol had been summoned to appear at Newcastle to justify his conduct before his lord. On his refusal to put in an appearance, Edward got together a great host to invade Scotland and chastise his contumacious vassal. But Edward had to cope not only with the open hostilities of the Scots, but also with the treachery of some of his own subjects. A Welsh squire from Glamorgan named Turberville, who had been taken prisoner by the French in Guillaume, made common cause with his captors and was sent back to England in name a ransom prisoner reality the agent of a plot against Edward in the French interest. Turberville's plans were detected and he himself was hanged, but he was not the only traitor. A lord of the northern border called in the Scots to his castle at Wark, and while Edward hurried up to besiege the stronghold of the traitor, seven Scottish earls burst over the western march and spread death and destruction around the walls of Carlisle. Treason was outwitted, invasion repelled. At last Edward was able to begin his campaign. A goodly host followed the English king over the border. Anthony Beck, the warlike Bishop of Durham, called away from the foreign diplomacy by the danger to which his palantate 
was exposed, attended Edward's camp with a train of 500 horsemen and 1,500 foot. The sacred banner of St. John of Beverley was displayed at the head of the invading army. On the 30th of March, 1296, the great commercial town of Berwick was captured by a sudden and ill-planned but vigorous and persistent assault. A Scottish herald now brought to Edward's King John's renunciation of his plighted homage. The false fool, cried Edward, if you will not come to us, we will go to him. Reckless of the havoc which the Scottish invasion of Upper Tyndall was causing to his rear, the king bade his troops press forward. The Scots gathered to withstand the invaders on the heights that surround Dunbar, but on the English approach they foolishly left their strong position and marched them down to the plain, just as the Coventing army in 1650 delivered themselves in the same way into the hands of Cromwell. On the 27th of April, the van of the English host under Earl Warren fell upon them in their unfavourable quarters and easily scattered them. Next day, Dunbar opened its gates to Edward. The rest of the campaign was but a military promenade. Edinburgh surrendered on the 14th of June. St John's Day was celebrated within the walls of conquered Perth. On the 10th of July, King John appeared before the Bishop of Durham at Brecon and surrendered his person and his kingdom to the English king, bewailing the errors into which he had fallen through evil counsel and her own simplicity. Edward now pushed on northwards to Aberdeen, when he marched to the furthest extremity of the lowlands of Banff and Elgin. Before the end of August, Edward was back at Berwick. He brought with him the mysterious stone from Schoon Abbey, seated upon which the Scottish kings had wanted to be crowned. At Berwick he held a parliament, for those of the Scottish magnates who had not already made the submission vied with each other in performing homage to the conqueror. Few estates were forfeited, and no lives were threatened, and no attempt was made to interfere with the ancient laws of the land. The bloodless conquest gave Edward little opportunity of showing his generalship. His fixed resolve to leave things alone in the conquered land was the best proof of his statesmanship. It was a triumph of the most brilliant and unexpected sort. But what probably best pleased Edward at the moment was that his Scottish conquest had at last set him free to try conclusions in person with the hated king of the French. After appointing English officers to rule the Scots, Edward returned to the south, resolved that the forthcoming year should settle the affairs of the continent, if it lay in mortal power to bring matters to a conclusion. Despite the fatigues of the campaign, Edward allowed himself but little rest. Further supplies were necessary if the king's twice-deferred expedition to France were to be a success in 1297. In November 1296, Edmund gathered together a parliament at Bury St Edmund and requested large subsidies. The laity made their grant, but the clergy asked for delay that they might deliberate further on the matter. The debates were long and stormy. The bishops urged upon the priests their obligations as loyal subjects and honourable men. The dignitaries expatiated upon the danger of French invasion, but the proctors of the inferior clergy declared that the purses of the poor parish priests had been drained dry by Edward's previous exactions, and their practical objections to pay anything more were supplemented by the theoretical difficulty which the abbots and priors, amongst all the strongest papalists, found in the recent action of the Pope, Boniface VIII, who had ascended the papal throne in 1294 and had issued early in 1296 his famous bull, Clericus Laos, forbidding clerks to pay taxes to the temporal authority. Archbishop Winchelsea was himself strongly inclined to the view upheld by the monks, but he persuaded the impatient Edward to allow the question to be postponed to January 1297, when a clerical synod was summoned by the Archbishop St. Paul's in London to further consider the matter. 
Edward filled up the weary delay by a pilgrimage to Our Lady of Walsingham. The clerical assembly duly met, and after long debates, all ordered the clergy united in a point-blank refusal to help the king. Their obligations to Rome had prevailed over duty to England. Edward was furious with the clergy. Since you do not observe, he said, the homage and fealty which you have sworn to me, I too will not be bound to you in anything. He ordered that no clerk should be allowed to sue in the king's court, and that such of the church lands as were held by ordinary lay tenures should be taken into the king's hands. If any layman met a monk or clerk riding a better horse than he had himself, it was declared lawful for him to appropriate it for his own use. The whole clerical estate was to put out of law. Tidings of a severe defeat of the English in Gascony had come opportunely to hand. In their raids, the clergy saw in the disaster to our army the finger of the avenging providence. But Edward was not so easily turned from his purpose. Archbishop Winchelsea hurried to the king's court to seek to mitigate his sovereign's wrath. On this way, the king's officers seized the horses ridden by himself and his followers. Winchelsea got to the court as best he could, and found that his intercession was of no avail. Edward gave out that unless the clergy submitted by Easter, he would confiscate all of their lands. Another church synod met where love of country and love of gain, fear of the king and fear of the pope, tore asunder the whole order in hopeless divisions. At last, Winchelsea was forced to adopt a middle course. He advised each clerk to follow his own conscience and announced that no ecclesiastical penalty would follow upon submission to the royal will. Most clerks now gladly paid their share of taxation and were received back into the king's protection. Winchelsea held out obstinately and Edward took possession of all his lands. The king had thus gained substantial victory, but only after great friction and a considerable waste of precious months. He never forgave Winchelsea for forcing the conflict upon him, and laying clear to all men how divided was the allegiance of the clergy between the Pope and the king. Winchelsea's unpatriotic conduct could only have become successful through the real exhaustion of the taxpayers and the widespread ill will which Edward's spirited foreign policy had excited. There was no such strong national animosity between France and England as that intense feeling which, in the succeeding century, made it an easy task for Edward's grandson to exact abundant supplies to carry on a war of aggression in France. The laity sadly shared in the dislike expressed by the clergy to make Edward further advances, and, just as the dispute with the clerks was approaching settlement, a new difficulty raised by the nobility interposed a further obstacle to Edward's cherished plans. In February 1297, Edward had assembled a parliament of nobles at Salisbury. He did not summon the clergy, as they were still regarded as outlaws, and he did not convoke the third estate, as the commons had already made their offering at Barry. Edward laid before the nobles a plan of campaign against the French. He proposed to go in person to Flanders, though for reviving the energy of the Confederate princes, while he requested the leading earls to go to Gascony, where little but Bayonne now remained in English hands. Since the death of Gilbert of Gloucester in 1295, the leadership of the English baronage passed to Roger Bygood, Earl of Norfolk and Earl Marshal, and Humphrey de Boan, Earl of Hereford and High Constable. Both earls refused to go to Gascony, on the grounds that they were bound by their offices as Marshal and Constable to attend the king in person. Willingly, said the Earl Marshal, will I go with thee, O King, and fight before thee in the first line of battle, as I am bound by hereditary duty. Thou shalt also go along with the others without me, was Edward's answer. This I am not bound to do, replied the Marshal, nor do I intend, my lord, to serve abroad save with thee. Edward burst into a passion, 
By God, Sir Earl, he exclaimed, you shall either go or hang. By that same oath, Sir King, answered the Marshal, I will neither go nor hang. The Parliament broke up in disorder, the two earls took up arms, and a band of 1,500 well-trained horsemen soon gathered together under their banners. Edward was thus further off his goal than ever. Despairing of regular grants, he had laid violent hands upon his subjects' goods and appropriated all the vast stores of wool and hides, which in those days were the only commodities large produced in England for export. But the followers of the two earls forbade the king's ministers seizing the king's wool and hides upon their lands and bade them be gone under pain of death or mutilation. Moreover, the townsfolk now began to throw in their lot with the rebellious barons. Nevertheless, Edward's fierce will still held out against every obstacle. Inflexible in his great purpose, he ordered a general military levy to assemble at London early in July. But he so worded the writs that it might be seen that the military tenants attended, not because bound to appear by reason of their legal obligation, but as a favour at the special request of the king. Availing themselves of this pretext, the earls of Norfolk and Hereford consented to appear. With reflection came calmer counsels on both sides. Edward appointed other nobles to execute the offices of marshal and constable, and the two earls went back to their estates. The king also promised to give pay to all his tenants who served in Flanders, and restored the temporalities of the Archbishop of Winchelsea and the recalcitrant clergy. On the 14th of July, a formal reconciliation between the king and the archbishop was brought about in the presence of the king's son, many bishops and barons, and a great multitude of people outside the great hall of Westminster. For your sakes, declared Edward to his people, I am going to meet the danger. If I return, receive me as you have been wont to do, and I will give you back all that I have taken from you. If I die, here is my son. Take him as your king. Winchelsea burst into tears. The people declared their fidelity with uplifted hands. But the touching scene was no sign of hearty reconciliation. Two earls still held aloof. The clergy held long and acrimonious debates as to the precise conditions of their reconciliation, and the Scots burst out in open revolt. The baronial leaders would be content with nothing less than a complete submission to their demands, and Edward, after struggling against them for a month or longer, resolved to go to Flanders and let the English affairs take what course they might. On the eve of his departure, he wrote a frank and high-spirited letter to his people, justifying his violent action by his extreme necessity. The heavy taxes and the illegal exactions were as painful to him as to his subjects. He did not impose upon them to buy lands or tenements or castles or towns for himself, but for the defence of the whole commonwealth against foreign enemies. The whole tone of the letter brings out how clearly Edward valued the opinion of his subjects. Common dangers were still, as in 1295, to be met by common action. The month of August was nearly over when Edward at last went to New Winchelsea to take ship for Flanders. A few days before his embarkation, he narrowly escaped death after a horse accident. He was riding along the earthen rampart, which then protected the side of the town next to the harbour, and which, crowning the brow of a steep hill that sank rapidly towards the sea, gave him an admirable view of his assembled ships. Suddenly, the king's horse took fright at the whir of the sails of a windmill, carried round rapidly by a brisk breeze. The animal refused to stir a step further, and as Edward plied whip and spur to urge it on, it slipped from the earthen rampart and fell into the road, many feet beneath, which led down in sharp zigzags from the town to the harbour. Everybody thought that the king was killed, but the road was soft from recent rain, and the horse miraculously fell on its feet, so that Edward, no worse for his fall, rode back into the town, amidst the rejoicings of the townfolk and the soldiers. 
he soon afterwards crossed over to Flanders. No sooner was the king gone abroad than the two earls united with the archbishop in formulating their grievances and demanding redress. On the very day of Edward's departure, two earls appeared before the barons of the Exchequer and forbade the collection of the aid until the Charters of Liberties had been confirmed. The regency, at the head of which was the king's son, Edward, had neither the means for nor the spirit to resist their demands. In a tumultuary and incomplete parliament which assembled in October, the regents reissued Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forests, with additional articles of the utmost importance. By then, the most recent unlawful aids were utterly renounced, and it was promised that no such taxes should henceforth be levied, save by the common consent of the realm and to the common profit thereof. Next month, Edward himself ratified his son's acts at Ghent, the long constitutional crisis that has ended for the moment in the complete submission of the king. The confirmation of the Charter of 1297 is one of the turning points in our constitutional history. It sums up the whole advance won by the people in the lone struggle that had raged with but little cessation since the first submission of John to the popular will upon the field of Runnymede. It stands in the closest relation to that development of the parliamentary system, which is among the chiefest glories of the reign of Edward. Edward had called into being the Parliament of the Three Estates. By his concessions in 1297, he invested the body that first met in 1295 with the highest and choicest of its powers. But it was the greatest triumph of the popular principle that age witnessed, and the triumph became all the greater when it was won from so fierce and strong a king as Edward. But the politic submission of the king ended in the fashion the long crisis that had begun with the French king's attack on Gascony. Edward seemed now again set free to carry on his policy as leader of the English nation. If the last years of his reign, upon which we are now entering, were less glorious than might have been anticipated, it is not because of his concession, but because it, he did not continue to act in the spirit of his concession, because, agreeing with his lips to the great principles of the popular control and assent, which he himself had enunciated, he acted in his heart within a spirit opposed to them. End of chapter 11